We continue with our shutdown coverage in this hour. With federal government shutdown machinery already cranking up, can Congress pull itself together to pass a continuing resolution? The situation is fluid. We get the latest situation report from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. Well can it? It doesn't look like it. It certainly doesn't look like it. Of course, we've been through these many times before, and there always seems to be an ability for members of Congress to pull a rabbit out of a hat and maybe get a last-minute reprieve from this. But what's interesting about this is that the train is moving down the tracks toward this government shutdown, and really there's nobody flagging it saying that it's not going to happen. Many of the lawmakers who will usually hedge and say, well, we can maybe work something out here or there, they just aren't talking like that this time around. It's just just because the gaps between the House and Senate, as well as within the House itself, are so deep right now. And of course, biggest problem is the House Republicans just not being able to get on the same page related to a short-term spending bill. There's that hardcore group of about five or six hardliners who just do not want to have a continuing resolution, and they say it won't go forward no matter what. Now, what they're trying to do, at least for show, is to get some of the appropriations bills moved forward this week. But really, when it comes down to it, that doesn't really make any difference. Many of these people in the House Freedom Caucus say that they would like to get back, of course, to regular order and get all 12 appropriations bills done. Well, of course, that's just not going to happen this week prior to the deadline, which comes up on Saturday at midnight. So right now, everybody is just waiting, really, to see what's going to happen. Now, there is movement behind the scenes with a variety of possibilities. I'll run through a couple of them. One of them would be if the Republicans somehow were able to get a short-term spending plan and get it over to the House, of course, it would probably be rejected right away by the Senate. That's probably unlikely. Another more likely but still pretty rare scenario would be Democrats reaching across the aisle to help House Speaker Kevin McCarthy somehow get this continuing resolution across the finish line. But of course, McCarthy has the issue of whether or not they would vacate the chair. In other words, make a motion to boot him out of the speakership if he cooperates too closely with the Democrats. So obviously, House Speaker McCarthy really in a political vice right now. And as a result, the country is once again facing down a possible government shutdown. Yeah, it's really amazing. I guess maybe both sides figure once it is going to be inevitable, what can we do to get the most political hay out of it, maybe, which is kind of cynical, but that's how they look at it, I think, sometimes. Right. And the polling has really shown that whichever party pushes to do this usually suffers politically. And all of the cases prior to this, it's really been uh, the Republicans. Now they have legitimate complaints about too much spending and they want to get the spending down. And Democrats even say that's okay, but they say take it through the regular process. Don't penalize federal workers and a lot of federal agencies and other people just because you have these political goals in mind. And I think there is concern within the moderate Republicans. Republicans in the House and, of course, definitely uh, many Republicans in the Senate that this is going to hurt the party politically moving forward. Now, we'll have to see how long does this government shutdown last. Of course, we all remember the last one that was from 2018 into 2019, the longest shutdown ever, 35 days. I don't think that we would get into that kind of territory. I think there is a resignation that while the shutdown will take place, that they will start somehow trying to move the levers politically uh, with the Senate perhaps taking a more active role to get the shutdown ended relatively quickly. But the idea of doing regular appropriations bills, that almost sounds like trying to play the violin on a storm-tossed dinghy. 
It really does. There's just not time. I mean, look at what the calendar says to us right now. We're in September, and they only passed one bill all year long, and that was in the House. How are they going to get anything close to all of these bills passed by this Friday? It's just not going to happen. We're speaking with WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And the failure of that vote, that was astounding on the military budget. It really was. This is something that just does not happen hardly ever in the U.S. House of Representatives. It's the procedural vote to the rule. You have to approve the rule to move on to the main debate and then, of course, the final vote on whatever the issue may be. In this case, the issue is an $826 billion budget for the Pentagon that, by the way, includes military pay raises. Usually, this is an easy slam dunk for lawmakers to get passed, but we were really stunned, everyone on the Hill, including the lawmakers, that Republicans, for the second time, not just the first time, was unable to get enough of their own members to pass the rule to get to this Pentagon budget. And so, once again, we have a major legislative initiative that is stuck in the U.S. House. And, well, there it stands. And I wanted to ask you about something else that seemed stuck, and that is the vote on the nomination of the Joint Chiefs Chair. Why didn't Schumer do this months ago? Why did he choose now to do it? Because the holds are still in place, and most people look at this and scratch their heads at the procedure. Right. So looking at this from a broader standpoint, a lot of people say, well, okay, the Senate finally did take up and approve the nominations of the Joint Chiefs, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the Army Chief of Staff. This could have been done months ago, even though Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama has had this hold on for more than six months. The reasoning, at least from Majority Leader Schumer's standpoint, is that many Democrats felt if they did give in early on this, that this would basically set a precedent that any Any member of the U.S. Senate could take any kind of issue, put a hold on it, and then just wait for the other party to cave. Now, some argue that this does open the way just for that. And there is concern within the Democratic Party about whether or not Schumer should have done this. I think ultimately, though, they just felt that they had to get these key major positions uh, high up in the military brass, obviously, moved through. Now, this doesn't really change anything, for better or for worse. Tuberville has not changed his position in anyway, and we'll have to see whether or not this causes them to move on any of the other nominations. But there has been an estimate, if they actually went through all of the more than 200 nominations that are held up right now, that this could literally take months to do. What a picture you're painting. It looks like, a, <laughs> what was that one by a Picasso? Guernica? Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's what I'm seeing in my mind's eye, a giant mural of the ultimate chaos of, of Congress. Absolute here. ultimate congressional chaos right now. And one little thing that kind of came and went without a lot of notice, and that is a measure that the House Oversight Committee approved, and we should say that must have been bipartisan, which means that marijuana usage prior will not necessarily prevent someone from getting security clearance. Right. This was something that was spurred by the fact that many states, of course, have changed their laws related to marijuana. And one of the co-sponsors is Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin. And in the House Oversight Committee last week, they had an extensive discussion about this. But 
ultimately, Congressman Raskin and, and some Republicans who also back it, including uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, uh, they say it's just really time to change the federal guidelines related to people that are applying for these federal jobs. So for somebody who had previously used marijuana and admitted it in interviews, that will no longer, at least under this bill moving forward, be a cause for them not to get a chance uh, at getting that federal job. And also it affects the security clearance. And a lot of people have gone through these security clearances. They remember this question. And in this case, they are going to move that aside as well. This is called the CURE Act, which is stands for Cannabis Users Restoration of Eligibility. But a lot of lawmakers from both parties felt that it was really time to move forward. And if somebody did partake sometime years or months or whatever it was a long time ago, uh, that they should not be prevented from applying for and getting a federal job. Yeah, with this new generation of lawmakers, they're like the uh, woman that sniffed the chicken and said it wasn't fresh. <laughs> and the butcher said, could you pass that test? So maybe this is what's going on right. here. They, they've all had a little. And I just can't let the occasion go by without some thoughts of yours on what's the reaction in the press? What does it look like? with the new uh, dress code or lack of dress code in the Senate. I mean, how far can they go? I know. This is really interesting. Amid all the chaos that we've been talking about with shutdowns and everything that's going on, this is getting a ton of attention from everybody in the Capitol. A lot of people talking about it. Of course, the Senate dress code, generally, you see a senator with a suit and a tie. And that's really how most of the senators, virtually all of them, uh, still walk around when you see them in the hallway. But Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer loosened that dress code. He hasn't specifically said why, but I think everybody knows why, and that is because Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, who stands very tall in the Capitol, also is very noticeable when he walks in with shorts, off in a hoodie. I saw him last week walking with shorts and a short sleeve shirt with tennis shoes. He does really cut an imposing figure, and some say that it's an embarrassment, frankly. A lot of Republicans have sent a letter to uh, Senate Majority Leader Schumer saying he should maybe reconsider this. And even the number two Democrat, Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, actually asked Senator Schumer to reconsider this late last week. Now, there are lesser, uh, more kind of Friday casual clothes that take place here in the Capitol. You see uh, a lot of people have talked about the fact that they basically say that uh, lawmakers are wearing tennis shoes. Well, that's not quite right. These shoes are kind of like all work on the top and tennis shoe on the bottom, if you will. And so uh, a lot of them just wear them for comfort. And I think those are pretty widely accepted. Uh, For example, you see the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, who's a very sartorially uh, well-put-together person, uh, often wears wears these shoes. And uh, it got a lot of attention months ago when there was a picture in the White House with him and others. And some said, hey, what are they doing wearing tennis shoes? So that part of it, people accept. But there is a, a lot of pushback related to this change that's been made by the Senate Majority Leader, and also a very funny comment that came from Maine Senator Susan Collins, the Republican, who said, well, maybe if they're changing everything, I'm just going to wear a bikini to work. That is an image I think we don't want to be able to see because we could never unsee it. Well, you know, as one columnist said with respect to the Senate, you know, that's the same place where Robert Lafayette, Harry S. Truman, Daniel Calhoun, you know, strode into that very chamber. And 
you know, have a little respect for the uh, for the ancients. Anyway, well, <laughs> we're not going to resolve it here. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Tighten your tie, and we'll catch you next time. All right. I'll try to look presentable. Thank you. <laughs> and we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Continue your resolution to listen. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my tra- trajectory in many ways. So that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed. And now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? 
I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, well, it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're, if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust. And so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career? When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I, w I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership 
feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, I, I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can, and the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or, you know, something something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating, and, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. You just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? 
it's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.